Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. Thank you so much for listening. We're still in the middle of May, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And every day, we're celebrating, supporting, and inspiring fellow Asian Americans by sharing uplifting stories of awesome Asian Americans in our community. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, May 6th, uh, be sure to check out our webinar tomorrow. It is a Candid Career Conversations with Sun Nguyen and Sarah Yu, hosted by students Manny Lim and Jeanette Mai. It's going to be a great time talking about careers, how to navigate internships and full-time jobs in the era of COVID and beyond. It's at noon tomorrow, Thursday, May 7th. If you're watching or if you're listening to this after the fact, check out the replay on the Facebook page. Today, my conversation is with Carol Pack, who is the founder and CEO of Maku, a craft makgeolli brand. And makgeolli is a traditional Korean uh, rice-based alcoholic beverage. So very cool to have Carol on the show to talk about a new and exciting brand and how she navigated her way through college, early years of entrepreneurship, also going back to graduate school, eventually starting a business that pays homage to where her parents come from and a drink that is very traditional in the Korean culture. Thanks for listening. And here now is my conversation with Carol. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, wherever you may be, whenever you may be listening to this show, we hope that you are happy. We hope that you are uh, staying safe out there and healthy. You know, as we go through life as children of immigrants or immigrants ourselves, uh, we make certain decisions in terms of how much we want to lean into our cultural identity. And for those of us who grow up in areas in larger cities where there is a large concentration of friends who look like us and, and come from similar backgrounds, uh, many times we congregate and, and build social networks, um, especially during college and beyond, um, through drinking. Different cultures have different drinking customs and uh, you know, different types of traditional liquors that are introduced to us. Um, I myself, having grown up mostly uh, from college and beyond in Los Angeles, um, being very close to LA's Koreatown, have had a great fortune to be connected to that. And so when I found out about our guest's product today, it got me super excited because it was marrying traditional Korean beverage with a modern twist and the branding and the marketing, um, everything was just so on point. Um, extra points because she also went to Michigan extra points because she also went to my high school's rival school, although uh, not at the same time, uh, but uh, super happy and excited to chat with Carol today. Welcome to the show, Carol. Hi, thanks for having me. So when we look at Carol today in 2020, you are the founder of a craft makgeolli brand called Maku, which mm -hmm. the branding, the design, as I mentioned, anybody can look at it and go, wow, that is really modern thinking. It's putting what a traditional beverage that was not sold towards an American audience. Um, a lot of it is just imported using traditional brands. And, and, and so I always got curious of who is behind this new brand, right? Because it seems to be done with a different lens and a different strategy from a lot of other players. Um, if we look at most um, beverage companies coming out of Asia, um, they traditionally keep and maintain their original brand, even the labeling and whatnot. So um, I'm fascinated to learn a little bit more about you today and have you share with us sort of how um, Carol maneuvered her way through the New York City education system with a brief stay in Ann Arbor, um, eventually back to New York and ended up um, being the founder and the principal owner of a fun alcohol brand that I think is going to change a lot of people's perception about what Makkali is and then about what Korean uh, beverages are. So we'd love to learn a little bit more about you in your earlier years of how the Pack family um, found their way to New York City, to America. Share with us um, how did that all happen and you know how did you spend your and where did you spend your early childhood years and in what sort of surroundings and how that impacted your identity growing up in New York City. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my parents both came to the U.S. when they were in their 20s. Um, actually, maybe with my dad when he was 18, he went to college in Texas. Um, I think he dropped out and then tried again in Queens and dropped out again. But he moved because of his older sister. Um, and then my mom moved uh, to Brooklyn as a nurse. Um, it was like a, a 
a program that um, her hospital was launching in Korea. And so she was one of the few lucky ones that was able to come to America and she came by herself. And they ended up meeting in church in New York and um, they had me in 1988. And since then we've been in Flushing, New York. And the first, I wanna say 10 years we were in Flushing and then we just moved around in the general area. So Flushing, Bayside, uh, Whitestone. Um, we went to Long Island and then we had two years in Florida. So like, I guess Long Island and Florida was four of my years, but everything beyond that before college was in the surrounding areas of Flushing. Um, and for those of you who don't know Flushing, New York, it's a very Asian neighborhood. It's a lot of immigrants, working class, um, Koreans who have dry cleaners or laundromats if they're lucky and if not they're just finding any job to make ends meet. You see a lot of patterns with I think other similar cities who have a large community of immigrant parents where one um, the parents are not really home and so the kids all kind of grow up with the neighboring kids and they focus a lot more on social activities than like studying. Um, there's no such thing as like a tiger mom, like driving you everywhere and like making sure you're in your, you're like doing your schoolwork and after school activities. And then also uh, there's a lot of friends I had who never really learned English because we never needed to. We just spoke Korean amongst each other. And at the schools I attended, there were pods of circles um, based on your ethnicity. So there was like a Chinese group, there was like a Korean group, there was Indians. And I feel like, I felt like the whites were a minority growing up. So thankfully I was never insecure due to my race. And that's something that I am thankful for. But I would say that we did grow up in a bubble and America to me was what I grew up within Flushing and that was a lot of Korean food, a lot of Korean people and it was, it was comfortable and I never felt left out. So like, I guess I could focus on things other than trying to fit in. And so I was always kind of like free and confident and independent from a young age. So that, that was a benefit of growing up in Flushing. Um, I guess one thing that was hard about li living in Flushing was not having any role models. Like I never once thought of being a doctor or um, I never knew anyone that was super well off or, you know, like everyone looked to me as being the rich kid. And that was just because we lived in a house instead of an apartment. Um, and I guess I was the lucky one because my, my mom was a nurse and my dad had his own, his own business. And so I grew up with my parents and they always guided me in the right direction. Um, so I felt like I had the best of both worlds. I had the guidance and I also had a community where I was really proud to be Korean and I always like fit in. For those of you who are from New York City or have gotten off the end of the seven train at Main Street, you jump out and that's not an America that most people get to experience. Um, it actually, sometimes may not even feel like you can read any English-based signs. And, and I'm sure a lot has changed. Um, you know, I, I lived in Bayside for one year and Flushing for two years as well when I went to high school. And um, having moved there directly from the suburbs of Los Angeles, it was a shock not only to me, but for my mom too, because she all of a sudden lost the power of the car. You know, we didn't, we couldn't have been driven everywhere. Um, and obviously, you know, commuting from there um, to where you did, in lower Manhattan for high school and where I did in the very northern part of Bronx. I think being that student um, encourages you or, or sometimes forces you to mature quickly, to be a little bit more aware of your surroundings because you have to. And as you mentioned, you spend a lot of your time with your peers, even just in commuting from point A to point B. Um, mm -hmm. I think for folks who are not familiar with the New York City um, specialized high school system, 
Um, it wasn't a typical high school. We didn't have Friday night football. We didn't have as many evening extracurricular stuff because they were concerned about student safety going back home at night. Um, so it was a different experience. Um, I'm, I'm curious to get your take, Carol, um, having grown up in New York City. Mine was very different because I had transplanted in just the summer before freshman year. You go from a middle school in the general Flushing area that I'm assuming is, is very diverse um, from all different sorts of, you know, different backgrounds. And you go to Stuyvesant, which while diverse is generally, generally leans a little bit more Asian in representation, or at least over indexing as, as relative to the New York City population. Um, did you at that point feel that you had uh, more or better aligned role models, as you mentioned, of people who were achieving higher things as you were looking at upperclassmen that were going to, you know, the schools that you had dreamed of and, and some of the opportunities that came your way? I was one of two people who got into STAR for my middle school. And it was the first time that I would have been able to go to the same schools as my current like classmates um, if I had stayed with my local high school. So I was arguing with my parents that I didn't want to go to Stuyvesant because we had moved around so much and I was so sick of making new friends and adjusting. Um, but they were like, no, it's, well, actually, instead of them pushing me, I ended up only getting into Flushing High School, which is, I think, probably top 50 worst high schools in America. And there's not many Asian Americans there, and, and that thought scared me. So then when it came down to the two options of Stuy and um, Flushing High School, I, that's how I made my decision to go to Stuyvesant. But I really wanted to go to Cardozo or uh, Francis Lewis because that's where my classmates were going. But I wasn't living in the zone. So I had to apply for, for those schools and I didn't get in. Um, so I, I think in terms of the proportion, like the number of Asian Americans in both my middle school and the high school, it was the same. But it was the type of Asians that got into Stuyvesant that was very different. Like my friends came from all over, but a lot of them came from Little Neck. Um, there were people from Bronx, Brooklyn, Staten Island. So it was really my first time like experiencing other kinds of people. So like this wasn't, this didn't come down to ethnicity. I was having trouble because when I was in middle school, all I was listening to was like SCS and Finkel and um, HOT. And these people were listening to like green, green, I don't even know. Like they were referencing all of these American music and actors that I, I wasn't familiar with. So I really felt like an outcast because I was so Korean. Um, and in Flushing, like you grow up at an early age. So I was always hanging out with older people and they introduced me to like alcohol and PC bang. And I thought that was normal. Um, but all of these people looked at me like I was such a hangout. So it, it was a struggle. Like the first two years, uh, freshman year and sophomore year, I just went to school and I went back to Flushing and I hung out with my friends back at home. Or I found like two friends that were not Korean at Stuyvesant that didn't care about studying at all. We had our own group that was actually like none of them went to Stuyvesant. We all hung out in Flushing. So it, it, it was a big adjustment for me. And um, in junior year was when my guidance counselor was like, you need to start thinking about what colleges you're going to get into. And at this point, like, your safety would be like your best bet is Binghamton, which is a great New York state school. But hearing that was shocking for me because if you didn't make it to an Ivy league at Stuyvesant, you were like a reject. And that's, that's when I was like, I need to, I need to start hanging out with these Stuyvesant people and I have to study with them and I have to learn from them. So that, that that's when I put greater focus on like, trying to find a community and trying to prioritize studying and um, accepting the fact that even if I wasn't with my flushing friends like 24 seven, that like they wouldn't forget about me. Yeah, it took a while to adjust. It was, it was such a different world. Like 
the people that I was used to and the people I met at Stuyvesant. So it sounds like from that conversation with a guidance counselor in junior, uh, junior year and give or take a year, year and a half, you then make the decision to go outside of your bubble in a big way and relatively speaking, head west to Michigan, right? Where um, though it's a public university in Michigan, uh, most people may not know that there is actually a lot of New York City students who head there. And it is one of uh, the more popular out-of-state destinations for New York City high school students. So mm-hmm. talk to me about some of the things that you learned about yourself in Michigan, obviously out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. far, far away, not just from New York, but the cultural bubble that Flushing is and in a vibrant, diverse area. Um, yeah, what were, what were your years at Michigan like and, and what did you learn about yourself there? Yeah, so I chose Michigan because I wanted an American experience. I realized that, oh, my lens of this world is so skewed. Um, Like people make fun of New Yorkers because they don't know geography, but we really don't think of anything outside of New York. So at first I wanted to go to California, um, but then my parents didn't want me to go so far. So then I... Um, I ended up choosing Michigan and I was adamant that I wouldn't hang out with only Koreans and like I would learn about football and like sports culture and I would see what fraternities were about and I would like learn to drink beer and I was like all gung-ho and I went to Michigan and um, I didn't know how to make friends because there were so many people like I, I went there without knowing anyone and I don't know, I thought I was pretty good at making friends, but because I was such a minority and there were so many non-Asians, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to make a friend. So the first semester I was, um, I, I like was trying to apply to other schools to transfer out. And I was, um, I was like, I'll just go back to NYU. <laughs> I'll go back to my, my people. Uh, and I was also going to church because I was so lonely and I just like, couldn't adjust. And it was, it was a Korean American church. And then there I made friends really quick. And then it was, it was just like a older version experience of like what I had when I was younger. But, you know, I was like, I'm just going to accept that I, I'm, I want to be comfortable. Like, I don't think I can stay here other, like if I don't keep these friends, because that was my only sense of home. So that was my experience in Michigan. Ann Arbor is a fascinating town. Um, you know, when, when my wife and I first arrived there, um, we moved there in 2015 um, to start my program there. And we, we were shocked to find out um, that there were three Korean supermarkets. There were dozens of Korean restaurants. Um, and for obviously there's clusters of Korean communities wherever there's a large public institution because there's a student population and and a a hospital population there. But, you know, it wasn't as foreign or it wasn't as middle of America, small town as we had initially anticipated. It was funny because the first meal we had was at a Korean restaurant and we picked a random church to visit and the pastor was a Korean dude. And my first ever MBA class, the professor was a Korean dude. And so it was like left Koreatown in LA to come to like Middle, middle Michigan, Koreatown. And it's a fascinating place, I think, where um, it's, it's a very American town, right? It makes all these lists of, you know, best college town in America or best places to live. And um, yes, I agree with you that New Yorkers think that the entire world revolves around New York City. People who live in Ann Arbor also have their own opinions about how great Ann Arbor is and don't really have a uh, fair, objective opinion of Ann Arbor's place yeah. in, in the world. Um, but yeah, it is. It, 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 <laughs> It's, it's a fun place to be. Um, I'm sure, you know, um, we were probably about eight to 10 years difference um, from when I was in uh, Michigan to when you were. Um, I'm sure it evolved and, and grew in different ways. Um, what did you study at Michigan? What were some of the influences that you relied on to help you guide those decisions? And um, were you set on going back to New York City after? Or was your, was your trip to Michigan or your decision to go to Michigan sort of your permission to jump off of a trampoline and then have you land wherever life may lead you? Well, I, I never, I'm not the type to plan my life. So I never think further than like the next year, especially when I was, I don't know, tw- 
however old I was, 17. Um, so I, I decided on psychology as my major. Um, I didn't realize how important picking your major was at that young of an age. And I still don't think that someone at that age should be picking a major that really dictates like your career path. And it's hard to change sometimes when, when you're like, I have people who were on the medical path and when they were seniors, they started over and, you know, that's, that's really difficult for someone as a freshman. Um, but for me, it was, I just, was interested in psychology. I thought it was fun. I thought it was easy. Um, I'm, I definitely wanted to do something in the liberal arts, so like humanities field. So I was looking at, I guess I was looking at English or psychology. In terms of where I thought that would lead me, it's not something I really put much thought behind. Um, but my grandma always wanted me to be a lawyer. So I was like, okay, let's see what lawyers major in. Something in like humanities, liberal arts. Um, I think psychology is okay. So that was like my thought process. But I really enjoyed psychology. It, like I would just read the textbooks for fun. It wasn't like studying to me. But I think when, it, when, it, when graduation time came around, I was really regretting a psychology major because I had no idea what I could do with it and I wasn't ready to go to law school. So at that point, I was just following where life took me and instead of me looking for opportunities or creating opportunities, I just took whatever opportunities came my way. And then the first job out of college was um, at a non-profit that my dad's friend was in charge of. When did you decide not to go to law school? Because you pursued your business school degree mm -hmm. years later. Was, was law school something that was always in your mind as you were navigating your earlier 20s? Yeah, I, um, even, even when I took that nonprofit job, I was like, oh, well, a lot of lawyers are in nonprofit and in government before. So like, I think I'm on the right track. And then after that job, I was in uh, New York City Council. So I was like, oh, I think I'm on the right track. But I had a lawyer at church who was like, Carol, I don't think you want to go into law. I really hate my job. And I heard that twice, actually, from two lawyers in my church. So my dad was like, why don't you shadow them? Why don't you like go visit their office and see what they do? So I, I did that. And oh my gosh, I, I just, first of all, I just looked at all the books on their shelves that they had to reference. And I was like, oh my God, that looks horrible. Um, and then just, yeah, just, you know, like my idea of a lawyer was law and order on TV. You're a litigator and <laughs> you're a girl, you look so kick ass, you get to wear suits and like help all the bad people. But like, yeah, I was like, oh, I didn't realize how much studying it was. And most of the time you're just in a room and, um, so it wasn't like I decided not to be a lawyer then. I was like, let's just explore my options and see what's out there. But I did study. I did start studying for my LSATs anyways, because I was making $33,000 at my government job. And I was like, I'd rather have a boring job that pays well than, than like live on $33,000, right? I can shop $33,000 a year. So while I was studying for the LSATs, um, this is when like Facebook was hot and startups was hot and there was like an ecosystem growing in New York. So I went to a few meetups just to like see what was going on. And I met a developer who was trying to create a, a loyalty program, much like the Starbucks loyalty app. And he was mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm looking for a co-founder. Like I'm only a coder, but I don't know how to get this into the world. I was like, oh, like, oh, I use those punch cards. Like, I, I see an, a real need for this. This seems really exciting. And like, oh, I could be a co-founder. I don't have to work for anyone. 
So I decided to leave my job and become his co-founder. And I was 21 at the time. That was my first foray into like tech startups. And he ended up leaving because he had a better idea, but I was like, oh no, this is such a good idea. I'm going to go with it. And I through my boyfriend at the time, his friend, he became my co-founder. And we worked on this idea for a year. I think he a little bit less, but me for a year, because I was like so invested that I had to keep going until we we ran out of money. But I was presenting this idea at a hackathon and one of the judges, um, she was a woman who was like an MD or something at Goldman Sachs, had gone to Columbia Business School in 1980 and was a you know successful corporate person who was retired and wanted to start something and like do something she was passionate about. And that was like helping women entrepreneurs. So she was like, okay, I understand, like, I see your vision, but like, do you want to maybe come help me start my startup instead of working on your idea? And because I was already a year in and I was tired at this point and I, I put too much money and I didn't know what I was doing and I was starting to lose faith in what I was doing, especially because I wasn't a technical co-founder. I was like, oh, okay, like if you're going to pay me, at least I get to work with someone who's like accomplished and successful and maybe she'll like show me the ropes. So this company was called Plum Alley, still exists today. Um, and I was the director of operations there and I was there for three years. And I, when I decided to work with her, I was kind of tired and kind of scared of startups because I just felt like a failure at that point. And I was like, okay, uh, I will work for you, but I want to be able to study for the LSATs like while I'm working for you. So, she, so we agreed on that. And she was like, oh, if you work with me, I'll introduce you to my friend. She's a really successful lawyer and she can give you tips and like maybe she can help you recruit. Um, but I see something in you and I like, I want you to like come help me like build this, this company. So I think working there and really loving the process of building a company and being surrounded by like women entrepreneurs and just getting a thrill out of like the startup world um, and seeing that there was this thing called fundraising where you can find other people to back your project um, that opened my eyes to the world of like how startups and fundraising works. And then at the same time, uh, her best friend would always come in to rant about how much she hates being a lawyer. So then I kind of dropped the LSAT law school idea and like I was there for about two and a half, three years and we pivoted the company two or three times and I just saw so much money going into this company and I wasn't really sure what was where it was going to go and I think at this point I was 25 and I was kind of scared that I was not creating a career path for myself in case the company wasn't going anywhere um so at this point like she was suggesting why don't I go to business school and maybe join like a larger company or start my own company. So that's how I ended up going to Columbia Business School because I would meet so many successful friends of hers and they all met each other at Columbia Business School. So I was like, I want my network to look like this when I'm older. And like, I want myself and all my friends to be successful. So that was how I ended up in business school. And so between undergrad and B-School, you had a combination of uh, work as a job, uh, whether it was in nonprofit or in, in startup world, you also had experience uh, running your own, starting your own business and the trials and tribulations and, and the joys and stresses yeah. that come with that. You also did both post-business school um, with your first job out of school at uh, the venture arm of one of the biggest um, alcohol companies in the world working on innovation and eventually leading you to start your own thing. Do you think you would have had the ability and the guts and the know-how 
to be a founder, two-time founder, um, without those fundamental building blocks that you learned working for somebody else. Because there's a lot of people, um, likely a lot of our listeners, who have great ideas and don't think that they need to or that they're better than or that they're the opportunity cost is so great for them to start on this idea now versus going and, and you know, trial try by fire almost. Um, what kind of lessons did you learn through that experience and what kind of perspective or advice do you have for people who are deciding perhaps as they're about to graduate now, you know, do I go get a paycheck and learn or do I go and just, you know, jump off the deep end of the pool and then try to see if I can swim and, and build something great? I definitely learned a lot. I think the biggest impact on me being an entrepreneur now is working at Plum Alley, specifically under my CEO, Deborah. Um, because it pit, the company pivoted three times. And if it were me, I think I would have just gave up after the first pivot, maybe even the second pivot. Um, but looking at that company and then now reading like other case studies and listening to how I built this, you learn that like pivots are okay. And sometimes it just takes a couple of years to hit your stride. Like right now, I would say I'm in year three of Maku and I'm just starting to feel like maybe this could work out. Right. But if I hadn't been at Plum Alley and like understood that a lot of successful companies take three years to get something good, I feel that I could have, I could have quit because I definitely hit points in my company where I think that people who aren't familiar with the startup world and what it means to pivot and that it's okay that like I would have gave up especially because I had other opportunities come like along the way and I also had this huge business school loan that isn't going to go away and like I, I only have one year of forbearance so um, I think like perseverance is, is an important thing I learned another thing is I don't think I would have known what kind of leader I wanted to be unless I didn't work for Deborah. I've never had a real role model before that. And so that was really important to me. Um, I obviously have, haven't like exercised like being a real like employer, I guess, because my team is so small and I still lean on our team to like move forward. So I wouldn't say like, I am the boss, right? Like just yet. But I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what company I want to build in the long term because of her. Um, in terms of deciding if someone has a great idea and whether they should go for it or not, I don't know. Even me, like having a failed like mobile startup and putting all my money and savings into it and working at Plum Alley where there were really some days where I was like, oh my gosh, like, where's this company going? Um, even remembering how hard it was, doing Maku seemed harder than I remembered, like startup to be. So you have to really have grit and perseverance and thick skin. Um, you also have to have either deep pockets or a source of funding or a really good grip on how you're spending your money because the first few years is all about not running out of money because it's like building this runway to give you the like freedom to pivot or like to make mistakes. Um, like, I don't know. I would say I spent at least $150,000 on making mistakes and I was able to find money, but if I wasn't mentally prepared to that, I might run into that scenario of needing money and thinking through like where I would find that and like how, how I would convince people why they should invest in my vision. I wouldn't be here. I would 
be at some other job today. Those are the two things I always tell people who asked me, like, should I quit my job? It's like, you need to be ready to find money and you need to be ready to just like, there's going to be some dark days <laughs> and you have to get through it. Yeah. Um, you're, you're still on your journey. It, it sounds like, um, you, you've had to make some hard decisions in the first, uh, two, three years of Maku's mm -hmm. history. Um, and it may not seem so clear now, but, uh, take pride in the fact that you started something, uh, take pride in the fact that you as at the time of founding a 29 year old Korean girl from New York city, taking on the old world of beverages, not just here in America, but with the Korean concept where that industry is more old school than it is here today. Um, having spoken with many friends who are familiar with you and the product and its history, um, we're very proud of you. We're excited to see what is coming. Um, and a lot of that is sort of in this world of, man, like that's ballsy. I wish I had the balls to do that, right? And so, you know, it may, I think when you're in the, the middle of the storm, it's, you'd obviously, or in the, in the middle of the forest, you just see trees, you don't get to see the whole forest. So we're, we're all rooting for you. And I think obviously your, the book has not been finished even by any, any wild imagination there. Um, take me through the moment or the series of events that led to you wanting to leave um, AB InBev's venture arm in, in the innovation practice where you were learning about how to launch new brands but with billions of dollars of backing and distribution contracts and distribution networks and they can make anything successful if they put enough money behind it. What did you learn there? What did you observe there that made you decide, you know what, I think I can do this better than the biggest brand in the world and then do it my way? I was in ZX Ventures and within ZX Ventures, I was in the small 10 person team that directly saw like M&A and um, internal product development. So I got to see us like choosing these small brands to invest in. And then I also saw the process of how we decide to launch a new product and what that roadmap looks like and kind of what the challenges are, what kind of funding is needed and what kind of go-to-market strategy uh, looks like in terms of sales and marketing. So I had a pretty good overview of the market. Um, and I also had to do like financial, so I knew what ingredients should cost, what the margins should look like, what's healthy, what's not, how much cost can decrease with volume. And then we also had market research reports that let us know what the industry trends were why people were drinking less beer, what they were drinking more of, what the people want to drink in the future. So just kind of like being in the industry and keeping my eyes peeled and observing people, observing menus, I saw that there was this increased interest in kind of like international alcohol like um, beers from Mexico was exploding, spirits from other countries, Europe, Asia, they were exploding. And I think a lot of it had to do with the population of the US and the, mil the millennial generation, just being more diverse and being more uh, open. And a lot of that is due to the ability to travel and social media and you know, like interracial couples and things like that. One defining moment I remember is going to a meeting to talk with this team that we might invest in and the founders had no background in alcohol. And I was like, oh, like if these girls can do it, I think I could do it too. So, so that was one thing, but that was before I had the idea of like making a makgeolli. The second defining moment was when I was put on a project to launch a product in China and my mom was like, why would they put you on something Chinese? You're Korean. You should be sharing something Korean with the world. Um, and I was like, yeah, but China's a bigger market and maybe they don't care about Korea yet. And, and that was my answer to her. But 
while I was working in China, I went to Korea and my friends knew that I was in the alcohol industry and they were like, you should really pay attention to Makali. So kind of like me having the idea of like, it's feasible to be a founder if you, because people that don't have industry experience can launch brands and get investment from the world's largest alcohol company. Plus my mom being like, you should share Korean culture and Korean alcohol with the world. And then my friends introducing me to like, there's kind of like a new movement of makgeolli in, in Korea. Although I didn't know what the reason was back then. Um, and, and the fourth was, it was my first time having a corporate role and corporate job. And I realized that none of my past jobs, I was ever told what to do. And the only reason I took this job was because they told me that I would be an entrepreneur in residence, but everyone was telling me what to do and I didn't like it because I didn't agree with them. And I, I, I'm never the person, like I have to understand why I'm doing something. Like you, I don't do something just because you tell me to do it. So I, I, I was already burnt out after a year of like, just, just, doing things for people, but like not understanding why I'm doing something. It was a convergence of all that. And I was like, at least if I fail, you know, I don't have the stress of like, you know, listening to orders that I don't want to listen to. So that's kind of when I left. And, and I, I thought at the time that um, I, I would have access to Deep Pockets because I had a co-founder at the time who had access to Deep Pockets. And his whole thing was, I'll take care of the funding, you take care of the rest. And I thought that was a pretty good deal. (gasps) (laughs) Take me to the moment where you shared with your parents that after going to Stai, going to Michigan, you know, working in different startups, going to Columbia, which is a dream for immigrant parents, and then having the conversation saying, hey, Omai and Appa, I want to sell Makoli. Um... I don't think they were surprised. I think they always knew that I would have my own company. Their concern was, um, A, how about your business school loans? B, my dad uh, was an elder at my church. So that's Changnonim, uh, which is, and he was essentially like the pastor's right-hand man. And it, it was the church that they met at and got married at. So they have been members for 35 years and everyone at this church, it's like a one big family. And he, he's a type that drinks alcohol in secret because he doesn't want anyone at church to know that he's drinking. So it, it wasn't that, but my dad loves alcohol. And our whole family loves alcohol. Like, not the alcoholic type of alcohol, but, like, um, like it's very normal for our family to have wine or whiskey or soju with our meal, every single meal, Monday through Sunday. So I think he thought it was cool that I was doing makgeolli. And he was like, oh, every time, he's like, this would be your grandfather's dream for you to have a makgeolli company because he loved makgeolli so much. I wish he was alive to see you do this. But then the flip side was my parents were, were like, how, how do we explain to our church what you're doing? And at first we had like, I think the first year of me doing this, all the Korean like TV and radio, they like interviewed me and I was on the newspaper and my mom actually made the recipe and my mom was like, don't you dare ever, don't tell them who your mom is. Don't tell them that your mom helped you on this in case our church members see. So that, that was their whole thing. I think they figured out that like if it wasn't going to go anywhere that I would always have my degree to fall back on. And like, I just, I don't know. They, I don't think they were thought I was going to starve, crash and burn, (laughs) but they they were concerned with their image because of church. I, I, I've been smiling and chuckling the entire time you're telling me that story because so many of us go through with, um, I don't know, our, our parents collectively run like the world's greatest PR agency and spin factories of, you know, post-disaster, you know, public relations management, right? Like they just know how to keep things 
um, or, or they're very concerned about the response or the opinions of other people, which I think growing up in America is something that I personally too have always disagreed with because it's the way that we are taught from a, an American perspective is be you and who cares, you know, love it or leave it. Both, both extremes, right? And, and, and the right answer is obviously somewhere in between and it's something that makes sense for you. Um, but that's cool. At least they were 100% uh, supportive in, in secrets. Um, and I guess if, if church people listen to this conversation, they're like, oh, and you're telling the name drink all the time. And now we finally know. Um, sorry, Dad. Um, <laughs> so you, you've been at this for three years. Um, and, and kudos to you. Um, you mentioned some pivots earlier. And, and so in the last, um, late last year, and you relaunched into a new brand, a new can design, a new, pretty much mm -hmm. a new product. What, what was the process for you to get to that point of launching something that you could see on the shelves that your parents can go to the market and see on the shelves and, and um, get that feeling of accomplishment and mm -hmm. joy? I went to Korea for research. I tried probably between 70 and 100 different types of makgeolli. And that's a good research yeah, it was trip. Fun. And <laughs> there's there's one makgeolli that it was kind of my um my my target goal of this is what I want makgeolli to taste like. So we got there pretty quickly because uh, of my mom and she was able to like formulate a recipe that tastes very similar to that product. Um, but production was a huge challenge because making maku is a blend of making beer and sake and the, the licenses that we needed at the time was also complex. You needed a brewery that also that was licensed for both beer and wine and only the super large contract breweries in America would have that and a lot of them weren't willing to work with us because um, a they weren't familiar with our product and b we were so small so they'd rather give their time and dedication to another brand that had a guarantee um, volume and they were gonna sell so eventually we found a small brewery, a small sake brewery, but the product wasn't consistent and everything was manual. Like we would drive up to Maine and we would filter it and we would uh, get single, single um, fillers that home brewers use, fill each can, we would can it, we would seam it. We would hand label it, hand pasteurize it, hand pack it on a pallet. We would put the pack tucks on, palletize it, and everything was so manual. And I just knew that that wasn't scalable. So we eventually had to find a partner in Korea. But I guess it wasn't something that crossed my mind because it just seemed like a really large feat to produce so far away have zero control over what was going on zero insight to what was going on um these huge order quantities so i didn't go there from the beginning it also seemed like a really big ask for like a nobody young girl to go to like these large elderly ceos of like old makali companies that have been around for 20 30 years so i think the step of making it all manually at a really small sake brewery in Maine helped us get to a point where I knew that we would, um, I knew there was a market for it because we tested the smaku in like 15 accounts, but including like nicer restaurants like Momofuku and Teju Noodle Bar and Yoon Haeunde like it was an important stepping stone and I think a necessary stepping stone to getting a contract with a larger brewery in Korea and Korea solved some of our largest challenges, which was um, scalability and uh, quality control and consistency and shelf stability. So I know exactly what our issues were 
after going through four or five batches in the US. So yeah, when we finally got the contract with Korea, it was very reassuring because I had like 20, 30 years of knowledge and experience of expert makgeolli makers that were now creating my product. So um, we launched with the second iteration of Maku, which was uh, the one that was made in Korea in, in August of last year. And how have things been for you since the launch? I guess it's all relative, right? Um, I think the only word that comes to mind is I'm, I'm very grateful for where we are now. Not to say that we have a ton of sales and it's like an exploding company and people are lining up to like invest in us, but I think we have a solid product, um, have a solid team and we have a real, real fan base. And like, it's, it's not people buying Maku just because it's like a new novel, trendy thing. Um, they truly love it. And all of our customers are repeat customers that tell their friends about it and their friends end up buying it. Um, and all the growth that has, that we've seen so far has been a hundred percent like organic. I think we're in a very stable position in terms of we have a product that some segment of the population really loves. Now, now we just have to figure out um, how large is that segment or how can we grow it and how can we kind of like express what our vision is in like the best, best way moving forward. I think you can get somebody to try a product once because it is cool, because it is Korean, because it's, mm -hmm. you know, the new shiny thing, um, but for you to get people to continually mm -hmm. purchase, um, and distribution obviously for a growing brand is a challenge because you can't get it at, at a supermarket mm -hmm. down the street. Um, so I, I think it's uh, a testament to everything, you and the team and the branding and the product itself, obviously. And um, so I, I think there's so much potential. Um, the, the world is the upside, right? And um, there's not a lot of mm -hmm. competition because traditional Korean brands are playing in a very traditionally Korean market, even in the States, even though they might have you know, pretty impressive sales numbers. Um, if we were to fast forward 10 years from now, post COVID, post insanity, post mm -hmm. everything, and in the year 13 of the business, what would, what's the one thing that would make you the most proud of Maku? Um, I want people to know what Makali is. Why is it important to you? Because Makali is Korea's oldest drink. And I feel like if someone doesn't do something about it, it can disappear. Like there's not, it's, it's been a declining industry in Korea. And I think people in our generation, unless we are prioritizing kind of like rebranding Makali, it, it can disappear. So, you know, I can't do that in Korea because I, I cannot compete against the big players over there, but um, like the whole market is mine here. So I can start from like a white slate. And so, we, you know, if, if we can make it popular here, we can bring it back to Korea and make it cool there. I think you're well on your way. I used to never drink or never liked drinking makgeolli because it gave you like the worst hangover ever. If this was 20 years ago, right? When, when the products were not as innovative mm -hmm. as they are today. And it has for many different reasons, including bottle design and labeling and um, just brand as a product. It always had that um, traditional feel of this is not what the mm -hmm. cool kids drink. Um, still today, even though the bigger brands have, you know, ventured into Makoli and, and pushed it aggressively. I, I think you still feel that. And I think with your brand and your marketing strategy and then the way that you've positioned everything, um, very optimistic that public perception does change and that um, 
every, everything is uh, upside from here. Um, how did you land on the name Mako? Um, so one English spelling of Makali is M-A-K-K-U-L-I. And I knew that one of the biggest challenges about um, making Makali popular in the U.S. would be the, the, the spelling of the name. Because like no one can remember it. They always refer to it as like that white drink, that drink in the bottle. So I knew I wanted to be the Kleenex of Makali. Let me make my name almost synonymous with, with the word makali. Um, two syllables, cute and easy. Maybe if they can remember maku, they can like eventually remember makali. Big fan of clean, simplistic, modern designs and branding. And um, you're right. Part of taking a non-Roman um, letter-based word and anglicizing it is we can't ever agree to spell anything mm -hmm. the right way. And particularly with Korean words that turn into English words, there's, I mean, you know, can't, can't agree to spell half the words properly. And so people just, you know, botch it up. Um, the only thing that we can agree on is like Seoul and Soju, which like nobody messes those up, but anything outside of that, if you've ever been to a Korean restaurant and you try to read the English part of the menu, you're just left <laughs> scratching your head on how, who right. approved this. And did they not check with anybody who speaks any sort of basic English to see if this would sound okay? Um, Carol, congratulations on everything. I am super excited for you. Um, I know that the recent events of COVID-19 and the restaurant closures have um, temporarily um, paused your uh, growth, paused your excitement of launching a new brand. Um, but as mentioned earlier in having many conversations with friends of mine who are in the industry, who are familiar with alcohol brands. They are just as excited as I am to see you grow, to see the brand grow. And really, at least here in LA, um, looking forward to seeing it everywhere we go. Um, so um, congratulations. It's not been easy, um, but it is so inspiring. You have no idea how inspiring it is to see somebody that looks like you, even extra cool, when our paths academically have crossed paths and are familiar and our roots are somewhat similar, even cooler than that to have somebody do it at an earlier life stage. And all that combined in the lens of doing something that furthers where our parents have come from. Because like you said, if you don't do it, who will? And for folks listening, that's a completely organic and natural feeling to have. And it is not said to make you feel guilty about carrying the burden of carrying an entire legacy of a country's alcohol into okay. the universe. But you lived your life exactly the way you were meant to have lived for you to do whatever it is that you think you are meant to do today. The reason I started this podcast is because I looked around and I said, nobody's asking the questions that I want answers to. Nobody's doing it the way that I think it needs to be done. And that's not a disrespect to anybody who's come before me and certainly not a discouragement to anybody who wants to do it their way after me. But you are doing Mako your way. So many other people, we are seeing an amazing um, surge of second, third generation Asian Americans leaning hard into our identity, creating products that pay homage to where our, our bloodline comes from, but leveraging and using everything that our parents have sacrificed for us to learn and know in our new home of America and to marry that together to build respectful, traditional, yet modern and amazing businesses. So kudos to you. Um, yeah, th thank you for doing that. I think we need more. Um, it's shocking that as the largest home to Koreans outside of Korea, we have not innovated on things that give Korea culture, um, which a lot of reasons why it hasn't, but um, to, to see you do it is, is pretty, pretty cool. So I want to end the conversation the same way that we end all of our conversations. And it is going back to the name of the show called Dear Asian Americans. Um, as we just talked about, if not us, then whom? You also mentioned early in the conversation growing up in Flushing, which might surprise people because after LA, that might be the largest concentration of Koreans ethnically outside of Korea. 
And even in that world, because so much of the population is just so busy trying to survive and make it out and to put food on the table, the lack of positive role models in the careers that we don't even know exist at the time. Um, perhaps 10, 15 years ago when you and I were growing up, very, very different story than it is today. But still, uh, when you talk to young folks in high school, um, they still feel like there's not enough good role models that they can look up to. Um, you're changing that by doing what you do. If you would, uh, help us close out the show and write a letter to the Asian American community in whatever, however form uh, you wish to communicate that with. And uh, finish the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, we are a very large part of this world and we have a lot to offer. There's so much culture that comes from our continent and we as second, third generations, if we are in the position to do so, um, you know, if our parents brought us to America so we had more opportunity and more freedom, um, we should propel our legacy and our traditions um, and serve as role models to to those in our community and also continue to support each other because um, I think the only way I've gotten to where I am now is through the support system that I've built by growing up in such uh, an Asian community. So yeah, that's my message. Thank you for sharing that. And again, thank you for, for coming on the show. If you've listened this far in the episode, we want to have a little bit of fun. Um, so this isn't live, obviously, but if you're listening to this, the first three people who go and like Instagram at drinkmaku, come onto our page and post on Carol's episode post, where the brewery or the process, in what state did Carol attempt to first make maku here in the States? Um, I'll send the first three people, provided you're over 21 and you live in America and you can legally and tactically send it over there. Um, we'll share some maku with you. And, and that's a gift from me to the listeners. Um, if you find maku on the shelves of your local grocer or at your restaurant, please buy it. Um, even if you've never tried makoli, it's far beyond the act of liking something. Um, if we don't support people who look like us, if we don't support people who are our brothers and sisters and cousins and nieces and nephews, it is far, far more impactful to be Carol's 50th customer than to be AB InBev's 50 millionth customer because you have the power to shift the direction of somebody's business who has a emotional, and yes, it makes business sense on, on the balance sheet and on the spreadsheet, but you have the ability to support somebody through your purchase and through sharing it um, that impacts disproportionately, far greater positively than uh, we would choose some of the larger, um, faceless, multinational, publicly owned billion dollar enterprises that just see us as not even numbers because the numbers are so big. Um, so if you see it, please do support. Um, if you don't see it at your local Korean market or wherever, um, and if you are feeling bold that day, grab the manager, don't grab them, socially distance, write a letter, do something, ask for it at your market because part of the way that we're gonna grow the demand for this product, not just Carol's product, but all of our products that are trying to grow organically, is for the public to demand it from the places from which we buy so that they can then make the call to order some. Um, it is an amazing thing for us to see that the culmination of our parent generation sacrifice results in making products for the American market that pays homage to where they've come from, where we come from. So um, again, Carol, thank you, thank you so much. Um, share with us where the audience can learn more about the products, um, where they can buy it today, and uh, especially if they don't live in the major metropolis areas where they can go pick it up, 
um, is there a place online where they can buy it and have it delivered to them? So we work with the retailer that ships to the contiguous U.S., so 48 states, and all the information about our product and the links for our partner retailer is available on our website, www.drinkmaku.com. Check it out at drinkmaku.com. To better days, Carol, when we can celebrate with Maku in hand in person, whether that is in New York or in L.A., um, Let's hope better days are ahead of us and that we can celebrate together in person. Thanks again for coming on the show. Best of luck to you and your team as you navigate challenging times. And to you, come back. Cheers. Thanks again for listening. Really appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carol. Uh, so cool that she decided to start something that means so much to her and to her, pa- and to her family. And really meaningful in, in sharing the Korean culture with the community and beyond and we wish her the best we wish her the best in the expansion stage of her business if you found her story inspiring and fun please share it out with a friend or two be sure to subscribe if you haven't already follow us and like us on facebook follow us and like us on instagram and facebook at the asian americans and if you're listening to us on apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and a rating Please reach out if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts about the show, or if you want to come on the show yourself, you can reach me through the DM of the show account at the Asian Americans or my personal account on Instagram at Jerry J. Wan. Thanks again so much for listening. Hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're staying happy and hope you're staying safe out there. Till next time, this has been your host, Jerry Wan.